Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of sex work, drug use, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On June 2, 1972, Western Airlines Flight 701 approached its Seattle destination. With less than half an hour of their journey remaining, the passengers sat back calmly. In a decade that had seen over 150 plane hijackings already, the tail end of the smooth trip delivered a sense of relief. Until, at approximately 3 p.m., a man wearing an army uniform stood up and walked down the aisle. 20-year-old Kathy Kirko watched from her seat in row 22. She saw her boyfriend, 22-year-old Vietnam War veteran Roger Holder, disappear behind the flight attendant's curtain. Kathy sat up a little straighter, her heart racing, waiting. Two minutes later, the captain's voice filled the air. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a party up here in the cockpit who doesn't wish to go to our intended destination. Within moments, another voice resounded from the cabin speakers, one that Kathy knew all too well. Roger Holder said, There are weathermen among you. They have a bomb. One of them is on LSD. Remain calm. Don't try anything. These men will blow us all up if anyone steps out of line. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a ParCast original. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Female Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. This is our first episode on Kathy Kirko, also known as the Hippie Hijacker. This week, we'll cover Kathy's rebellious childhood and her early history of petty crime. Then we'll explore the events that led up to her historic hijacking. Next week, we'll learn more about Kathy's role in the Mile High Takeover and her subsequent run from the law. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. 
Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On October 6, 1951, amid the lush forests and clear lakes of Coos Bay, Oregon, Bruce and Patricia Kirko brought their first child into the world. They named her Catherine Marie Kirko, Kathy to her family and friends. By 1957, six-year-old Kathy had three younger brothers and two unhappy parents. She was too young to understand her mom and dad's problems, but old enough to notice that her father was particularly detached. Though Bruce worked as a truck driver to support his family, he dreamed of a life as a musician. Unfortunately, that wasn't the type of career one could have in Coos Bay, especially with four young children to feed. But while Kathy's father felt trapped and frustrated, he loved his kids, so he tried his best to stick around for them. One day during the summer of 1959, Bruce and Patricia took their children out for a picnic. Eight-year-old Kathy, an adventurous type, slipped off with one of her brothers to catch salamanders. As they caught critters in jars, two black boys approached her and her brother. Although she didn't know Roger and Sivenis Jr. by name, Kathy recognized them. The Holder family had been the talk of the town after a racially charged attack on one of the youngest sons. As Sivenis Jr. watched the two unsupervised Kirko kids, he saw an opportunity for retaliation. He wanted to beat them up like the other kids had done to his own brother, but Roger wouldn't have it. Instead, 10-year-old Roger approached the girl with glasses and asked what she was doing with the tadpoles. Kathy corrected him. She was catching salamanders. Roger enjoyed the girl's spunk, but his brother pulled him away. He and Kathy waved goodbye, hoping to see each other again. Ultimately, however, the budding friendship was cut short when just four days later, the holders suddenly moved to California but Kathy wouldn't forget Roger Holder and their argument over amphibians. In the latter years of her childhood, Kathy watched her parents' relationship completely deteriorate. By the time she turned 10, her father's musical ambitions had finally gotten the better of him. He ran off to Seattle in hopes of making it in the big city. This forced Kathy's mother, Patricia, to take over as the family breadwinner, Meanwhile, Kathy had no choice but to keep the household running and look after her three younger siblings. Before we continue with Kathy's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to sociologist Monica Kirkpatrick Johnson, when kids are forced to take on serious responsibility, they view themselves as older than they are. 
This is called subjective age, and it can lead adolescents to believe their maturity levels exceed those of their peers. As Kathy's mom took on a full-time secretarial job, Kathy made sure her younger brothers were fed, clothed, and always ready to go to school on time. In many ways, she became the second parent in the home. If a child chooses to take on additional burdens, they will likely manifest into positive characteristics down the line. But negative effects may emerge when a child is forced into roles that demand them to perform as though they're older than they are. Kathy may have appeared wise beyond her years, but really she was merely mimicking adult behaviors. This type of pseudo-maturity may increase the likelihood of problems like substance abuse and increased sexual activity in adolescence. For a while, Kathy showed no signs of any behavioral issues. She continued to care for her younger brothers as she always had, and she applied that same level of dedication to her studies, taking on many extracurriculars when she started high school. Among them were choir, Latin club, track, and community service. But by 16, something changed. With her brothers now older, Kathy didn't feel so obligated to spend her time caring for them. More than that, acting like an adult for so long had taken its toll on Kathy, who still repressed the pain and anger from her parents' separation. Unable to escape her resentment, she rebelled. She quit the track team, dropped out of choir, and stopped volunteering. Kathy dumped her boyfriend for a 20-something beach bum. Every attempt her mom made to discipline Kathy was met with verbal sparring. When 18-year-old Kathy graduated high school in June of 1969, her prospects looked bleak. While others left with career goals and college plans, Kathy kept dating and partying. So for the next two years, Kathy bounced from one random gig to another, unable to hold anything down. At first, it was just laziness. Eventually, her indiscretions escalated. While working at a drugstore, she stole amphetamines for her friends. When she was caught and subsequently fired, it didn't seem to bother her in the slightest. To make ends meet, Kathy resorted once more to theft. It helped that she wasn't anxious under pressure. Whether it was the latest lip gloss or new stockings that she stole, Kathy made sure to smile and nod at the shopkeepers when she walked out the door, just for the thrill of it. But years of walking aimlessly through life eventually caught up to Kathy. She lacked a sense of purpose. To remedy this in 1970, 19-year-old Kathy enrolled in her town's local college. One day, while strolling through campus, she caught wind of a Black Panther rally taking place up north in Eugene, Oregon. She felt drawn to the socialist group's bold dedication to demanding societal protections for Black people. So Kathy drove two hours and stood in the crowd as the gathering's leaders gave impassioned speeches about society's systemic problems. Up until this point of Kathy's life, she'd never involved herself much with politics. She still lacked a sense of identity and didn't know where she stood on a range of matters. However, noting their all-black leather aesthetic, Kathy thought their cause might just be one she could care about. 
The Black Panthers seemed cool to her, and the fact that both her parents and pretty much everyone she knew in Coos Bay would decidedly disapprove made joining the group all the more enticing. After all, Kathy made every effort to define herself in opposition to her upbringing. She didn't know what exactly she was meant to do. She just hoped whatever it was would set her apart from her parents. After leaving the event that day, Kathy declared herself a member of the Black Panther Party. Even though she never did anything to justify that title, she just decided she was one of them. In the months that followed, she clung to the identity of activism. As far as she was concerned, pretending like she had a purpose was better than having no purpose at all. Despite her newly adopted persona, Kathy continued floundering, unsure what to do with her life, until she received a fortuitous call in the summer of 1971. It was Beth Newhouse, a friend from high school, they hadn't talked in years, but Beth explained that her roommate had suddenly ditched her. Now she needed to find someone to take the extra bedroom in her San Diego apartment. Beth practically begged Kathy to move in. And it didn't take much convincing. Kathy loved the idea of San Diego, the warm weather, the beaches, the boys. Without hesitation, Kathy promptly dropped out of college packed up her Volkswagen Beetle and drove down Highway 101 from Coos Bay to San Diego. But Kathy could have never imagined what lay in store for her there. Up next, Kathy crosses paths with a stranger from her past. Hi, listeners. There's a new Spotify original from ParCast you do not want to miss. It's called Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, and it uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder, she'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as Richard Nixon, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, JFK, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow the fantastic new series, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. 
Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now, back to the story. After a few aimless years bouncing from job to job, in the summer of 1971, 19-year-old Kathy left Coos Bay, Oregon for San Diego, California. At first, heading south proved positive. San Diego's metropolitan offerings gave Kathy what her small hometown never could, a serious party scene, access to drugs, and a lot more men to date. She loved being free to do whatever she wanted and whoever she wanted. But Kathy soon discovered what happened in the city's shadier parts. In the summer of 1971, 19-year-old Kathy stumbled upon a job opening at the International Massage Parlor. Though she didn't have any experience as a masseuse, she got the job on the spot. On day one, Kathy eagerly tended to her first client. The massage seemed to be going well until the very end, when the man turned onto his back. Suddenly, Kathy understood why her boss didn't care about her lack of experience. There, lying naked on the table, the customer seemed to be waiting for a happy ending. Kathy was shocked and offended, but she also needed a job. After considering her options, she made a quick decision. In one fell swoop, she obliged the request. And she did it again and again with all the clients who came to the massage parlor looking for sexual favors. It wasn't that she enjoyed sex work. In fact, Kathy said she always tried to zone out until the deed was done. But the added cash was something Kathy needed to survive. Even with the extra tips, Kathy didn't make enough to cover rent, drugs, and still have spending money left over. Both Kathy and her roommate, Beth, fantasized of more disposable income. They just didn't know how to get it. Then, one day while smoking weed in their apartment, they came up with an idea. Maybe their dealer would let them in on his business. Kathy had already reconciled illegal activities as part of her daily life when she started providing sexual favors at the massage parlor. Yet another illicit side hustle was hardly a concern. If anything, the fact that it was against the law made it all the more exciting. So, Kathy and Beth convinced their dealer to hire them as sellers. For Beth, it was easy cash and extra pot to smoke. But for Kathy, it was more than that. It was a gamble against the law. According to Dr. Gail R. Bick, people who demonstrate a greater willingness to take risks are also often those who possess an innate desire for intense sensations. At her core, Kathy was looking to feel something. When individuals chase after high sensation activities, they tend to ignore the potential dangers they may encounter. Much like an addict, Kathy didn't think through the consequences of her actions. She just kept pushing the envelope further, hoping to find the elusive high of getting away with something illegal. The next five months of Kathy's life in San Diego were consumed by salacious massages, marijuana sales, and raunchy parties. 
But while selling drugs initially supplied Kathy with the sense of risk she craved, the thrill eventually wore off. Just as it had at the massage parlor, she yearned for something more to sate her fetish for defiance. Then, in January 1972, a new prospect arrived at her door. One day, 20-year-old Kathy was alone in her apartment, taking a shower. Suddenly, she heard a loud knock at her front door. She stepped out from the water, dried herself off, and padded down the hallway. Wearing nothing more than a bathrobe, she opened the front door to reveal a tall, black man with a military haircut. He looked oddly familiar to her. Before Kathy could question who he was, the man asked if Beth was home. She wasn't, so the man turned on his heel and left without another word. When he came knocking a second time, Beth was home, but she didn't want to see him. Apparently, he'd given her a fake name before. Turned off by his sketchy identity switch, Beth politely tried to send him away. But Kathy wouldn't let him go so easily. She invited him in to smoke some marijuana. As the three passed the joint around, Beth glared at Kathy. She couldn't believe she had brought this man into their home. But Kathy ignored her. She knew she recognized the stranger from somewhere. Soon enough, they put it together. Kathy's newfound friend was none other than Roger Holder, the young black boy who Kathy had met while playing with salamanders 12 years earlier. The two smiled at each other, feeling as though the fates had aligned to bring them back together. After that, Roger came around the apartment frequently. He was always there, and it didn't take long before he and Kathy started dating. But shortly after they became an item, Roger's skeletons emerged. For one thing, he had two daughters by another woman. For another, he had deserted the army two years earlier. Despite three tours in Vietnam, the military served him with an undesirable discharge. This left Roger even more bitter about his time overseas. Roger's resentment of his past didn't prevent Kathy from romanticizing it. To her, Roger was a man who had seen the horrors of war. He was tough, and she co-opted that grit. One night while out walking, Kathy and Roger were badgered by a group of white men. Roger threatened to fight them as Kathy dug in her purse and pulled out a switchblade. Kathy seemed to feel emboldened by the threat of violence. It afforded her a moment of intense sensation, just like she'd been yearning to find. The racist men backed off before Kathy could wield her knife, but she still showed it off to Roger. She knew that he thought of her as a naive girl from Coos Bay, but she wanted to assure him that she could keep up with the dangers he faced in his day-to-day -day life. More than that, she seemed to want the danger. After less than three months together, Kathy was head over heels for Roger. He returned those feelings, but it made him possessive of her. When he learned Kathy performed sexual favors for customers at the massage parlor, he grew irate and demanded she quit. Kathy wanted to keep Roger happy, so she left the job, even though she had no idea how she would earn money. While Kathy's relationship with Roger grew more intense, her friendship with Beth soured. Beth hadn't liked Roger to begin with, 
And now that Kathy was dating him, she wasn't so sure she liked Kathy either. By April 1972, Beth told Kathy she was moving out. Unable to pay for the two-bedroom apartment, Kathy and Roger looked for a new place they could afford. But this wasn't easy. Kathy had a shoddy job history, and Roger's army discharge didn't exactly make them good tenant material. But Kathy was determined, and lo and behold, by the middle of May, she found the perfect space. To make sure they were approved by the landlord, Kathy lied about her job. She said she was a respectable receptionist for a mobile home company. She never mentioned that Roger would be living with her, too. Her deception worked. She got the apartment without a clue as to how she and Roger would pay rent. But Roger promised her that their financial problems would soon be solved. The next weekend, Roger took Kathy out to a fancy dinner at Anthony's Fish Grotto. The couple took a seat along the floor-to-ceiling windows overlooking the San Diego Bay, and Kathy felt simultaneously worried and curious. She didn't understand why Roger would dare bring her someplace so fancy. Roger, however, had insisted, so Kathy got the feeling she might be in for some big news. Roger waited until their server brought them their seafood cocktails. Once all waiters were out of earshot, he reached across the table and took Kathy's hand. He spoke vulnerably, admitting that since Kathy had re-entered his life, he felt they were destined to do something significant together. And now, he said, he knew exactly what it was. Roger believed it was their duty to expose the problems of the Vietnam War, Frustrated by the senseless deaths of soldiers, Roger wanted to demand change, but he also felt there was only one way to get people with power to listen. He wanted to liberate the communist revolutionary and scholar Angela Davis, who had been charged two years prior for allegedly supplying guns used in a failed Marin County courthouse hostage plot that left four dead. Months ago, in February of 1972, her trial had begun, stirring controversy across the nation with its all-white jury. Many felt that Davis was wrongly accused and that her prosecution would only affirm the racial biases at play in American society. Roger thought that by forcing her jailers to release her, folks would be forced to face the racial discrimination happening in the country. But Roger didn't plan to execute this plot, which he called Operation Sisyphus, alone. He wanted Kathy's help. Eager at the prospect of yielding national attention, Kathy leaned in. She wanted to know how Roger planned to carry out such a bold pursuit. First, he said, they'd hijack a plane. Then they'd demand Angela Davis's release, as well as a hefty ransom to help them start their new lives. Once they secured Davis and the cash, they'd fly the stolen aircraft to North Vietnam, where Davis would be granted political asylum. They'd also donate some of the ransom money to a Viet Cong leader as an apology for the war. Finally, Roger and Kathy would fly to Australia, where they could live free from extradition. This lofty plan may have sounded ludicrous to most, but to Kathy, it was foolproof. Their efforts would be broadcasted to millions of people across the country. Everyone would know who they were and what they had done. 
For a girl who'd been searching her whole life for something to define herself, this was the opportunity of a lifetime. Not to mention the danger of it all was seductive. After years of escalating antics, her boyfriend was now offering her the ultimate rush. So when Roger asked her what she thought, Kathy looked at him with a clever grin and asked, what do I wear to a hijacking? Up next, Kathy and Roger commandeer Western Airlines Flight 701. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now, back to the story. After 20-year-old Kathy and 22-year-old Roger fell into a serious romantic relationship, they proclaimed themselves revolutionaries. In late spring 1972, they agreed to hijack a plane and barter for the release of Angela Davis. Roger was interested in the financial benefits of his plot, but he was more fixated on making a statement. Kathy was driven by her desire to defy conventionality, experience the thrill of lawlessness, and gain public attention. Both fully expected that they could execute their plan without any issue. They were relying on what criminologist Laura Dugan has referred to as the rational choice model. This theory asserts that individuals rely on rational calculations to make rational choices that result in self-serving outcomes. As Dugan explains, hijacking rates significantly increase after a series of hijackings closely clustered in time, but only when these attempts were successful. During the 1960s and 70s, over 150 aircraft takeovers were carried out in the U.S. alone, and a considerable amount of criminals got away with ransom money. Plus, passenger security checkpoints lacked law enforcement and metal detectors, Getting to the gate fully armed wasn't that challenging. Looking to these factors to calculate risk, Roger and Kathy considered their plan logical and well-reasoned. And though any American caught hijacking a plane would be sentenced to at least 20 years in prison, Kathy and Roger didn't plan on getting caught. Roger in particular did his due diligence to study every instance of plane piracy from the previous decade. Thanks to a flight attendant he knew, Roger had been flying back and forth from Los Angeles to San Francisco on comped tickets, scouting the airline layouts and procedures. He'd also found an old book from his army days, Guide to Selected Viet Cong Equipment and Explosive Devices. It was full of diagrams of bombs that they could use for the hijacking. 
In the final weeks of May 1972, 20-year-old Kathy and 22-year-old Roger solidified their plans. Angela Davis's jury deliberations were set to start on June 2nd. If they wanted to make the maximum impact on a global scale, then this was the perfect time to strike. Though Roger kept many of the operational details to himself, he needed Kathy to act as his eyes and ears. She'd alert him if any unexpected obstacles arose in the cabin. Too often, hijackers got caught because of an unpredictable passenger or a hidden FBI agent. They also decided to walk onto the plane as strangers rather than partners, so no one would suspect Kathy was in on the plan. Once these details were ironed out, there was just one problem left. They needed money to buy the plane tickets. By this point, both Kathy and Roger were completely broke. There was no way they could pay the $500 for two seats to Hawaii. But then Kathy had an idea. They could buy the tickets at the airline the morning of the hijacking and pay with a check. Then, if the checks bounced, Kathy would play the ditzy young woman card. She'd claim that she had just dropped off a paycheck at her bank and that there must have been some error. She'd throw in some tears to really sell it. The person at the ticket counter would have to believe her and let the two proceed while they sorted out the misunderstanding. By the time the airline realized they'd been duped, Kathy and Roger would already be in control of the plane. Roger delighted in her cunning solution. The final puzzle piece had been set in place. They were ready to hijack their way into history. On May 31, 1972, just two days before they planned to take over the plane, Kathy was supposed to visit her father in Seattle, but she skipped the flight. She had a far more important trip to prepare for. Kathy packed her suitcase for a new life in Australia. Roger, on the other hand, only packed two carry-ons, one to hold the hard copies of his demands and one for the bomb. On the morning of June 2nd, 1972, Kathy pulled on purple pants, a pink blouse, and a retro homemade belt. Meanwhile, Roger dressed in his army uniform, just for the irony of it all. Despite their plans for the day, Kathy felt lighter than ever. She waltzed to the door of their apartment, giddy, and lightly kissed Roger. He took issue with her breezy demeanor. He worried that Kathy might not be taking their plan seriously enough. But there wasn't much he could do. He needed her, and there was no way Kathy would let him execute the plan on his own. The duo arrived at LAX just after 9 a.m., Kathy went straight to the ticket counter and purchased two flights to Hawaii, paying with a check. Without issue, the airline representative handed over the tickets. Kathy nearly skipped away, pleased that her plan had worked. Then she and Roger walked to their gate and prepared to board. However, while waiting, they were approached by a concerned United employee. He told them they would have to return their tickets. The airline had called the bank, it turned out Kathy's bank account was overdrawn and they couldn't accept her payment. Panicked, Kathy tried to spin her tale about having just deposited a paycheck, but the man didn't buy it. Rather than make a scene, 
Kathy and Roger begrudgingly handed the tickets over, but the two weren't ready to give up just yet. They retreated to an airport bar where they ordered Bloody Marys and discussed their options. They knew whatever they did, they had to do it now. Angela Davis's jury would start to deliberate later that day. If they waited, it might be too late to help her. For a moment, they considered turning back. Their situation seemed unfixable. They wouldn't be able to trick a second airline into giving them flight vouchers without arousing suspicion. But then, Kathy had another idea. She still had her unused ticket to Seattle. She quickly ran back to the counter, this time inquiring with Western Airlines. She asked if she could exchange the unused round-trip flight to Seattle her father had bought her for two one-way tickets there. The attendant said that would be fine. Then she booked Kathy and Roger onto the 12.50 flight, leaving in just over an hour. Elated that they'd salvaged their plan after all, Kathy and Roger got another drink to celebrate. They'd have to improvise a bit, but nothing could stop them now. After downing their drinks, the two rose and parted ways, pretending to be strangers like they'd agreed. Around 12.20 p.m., they boarded the plane to Seattle and snagged two aisle seats for easy access. Roger sat down in 18D, and Kathy sat down four rows behind him in 22D. Before takeoff, Kathy maintained the same air of lightness she displayed earlier that morning. Buzzing on her recent cocktail, she grinned, unable to stifle the thrill of the high-risk mission that was about to unfold. As the flight took off, 20-year-old Kathy sparked a conversation with the passenger next to her, a middle-aged housewife from L.A. She fed the woman elaborate lies about who she really was, and later in the flight, even played gin rummy with the man across the aisle from her. For anyone who may have observed her, she would have seemed like a perfectly nice girl traveling alone. But Kathy's accomplice was about to make his first move. When the plane passed Washington's Mount Rainier National Park, the pilot announced they'd be landing in 25 minutes. Kathy glanced up towards Roger. As planned, Roger stood and made his way to the galley, where the flight attendants were hidden away. She could only imagine what was going on behind the curtains, but she had a pretty good idea. Kathy tried to act as normal as possible, but her ear tilted up ever so slightly, waiting for the announcement to come. Finally, about two minutes after Roger had strode down the aisle, the captain spoke on the speakerphone. He informed the passengers that the plane had been hijacked. Kathy's heart raced in exhilaration. This would be the trip of her life. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Kathy Kirko's story. We'll cover what happened throughout the rest of the hijacking. Then we'll follow Kathy and Roger on their flight from the law. For more information on Kathy Kirko, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking by Brendan Corner, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast Originals, like Female Criminals, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Female Criminals on Spotify, just open the app and type Female Criminals in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from Parcast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency, exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.